0: For 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear.
1: Welcome to Inside the Hive. I am Emily Jane Fox. I'm here with my co-host, Joe Hagan. Back again. We made it another week, Joe.
0: Another week. um, Another struggle to, um, you know, ward off... uh, alcoholism and other kinds of um, i would say challenges when you're trapped at your home there are, are different you kinds over? of challenges you're trying to strike a new balance
1: i think you're hungover is that true
0: just a little bit just
1: what did you do last night a little bit okay
0: you know what it is is i i stay up really late there's a lot more night owlism going on in my life mm. probably because during the day I'm running a, a, a one-room schoolhouse right. uh, with my wife and uh, trying to also do my job. And then the only time you really have is late at night when you're, uh, you've got your pile of dishes that have built up through the day. There's been a lot of articles about this in the New York Times and elsewhere about uh, the amount of dishwashing that is going on, um, and I'm a part of that. And then you know naturally, you're going to want to have a glass of wine or two. Possibly three, with your dishwashing. Of course, and then, then down you go. There's, down you I go. I don't.
1: I think that it's on the way to being criminal to do your dishes without having something to drink, right? I've heard. I've heard rumblings that that's going to be.
0: It feels. It feels right. They. They really are a match made in heaven. And it, by the way, there's a in my little town. There's a new, uh, newish liquor store, and I went down there to ask. I said, "How are, how sales?" He's like, "Oh my God! I mean, he's." He's like uh, cleaning up. He's probably the uh, only business in America that's like on a skyrocketing upward trajectory is the uh, booze business. There's so
1: many little businesses that are um, taking off during Corona, and I'm obsessed with them. And then, obviously, we have the flip side of businesses that are hurting. But I think we're going to have, uh, I mean, I see that drive-in movie theaters are going to be a thing, which really excites and delights me. As a long-term germaphobe, I I love going to the movies, but I hate going to the movie theater because I just feel like it's disgusting. And now we are all feeling that way. So the uh, the prospect of a drive-in movie theater excites me endlessly.
0: We have one that just announced this last weekend was the opening, and they were pl- their late night show was Grease. Cool. So of course, you know everybody's going to want to pile in there. Sure. And why I don't know how it went. I'll be really curious. But we've been talking about going and. Yeah, it's kind of a perfect um in a way, kind of a beautiful return uh to the old school, totally. right? Outdoor theater. Um yeah, so that's you know there we're we're dealing with um in in our transition uh through this transition to greatness as uh, our president is now what calling a slogan. His, his campaign. What
1: a slogan. <laughs> Let's talk about the president for a second, because as we yeah. started recording, you just told me uh, that our president is considering an executive order to limit right. some of the actions of social media companies, tech companies online. And this is stemming from the fact that Twitter slapped some fact checks on his tweets this week, and it is about time, and it is maybe too little too late, but they're doing something and our president is not happy about it what is he saying this morning i was recording our interview while this happened so f- to catch me up and where do we think this is going to land
0: well it's the the conversation that's raising right now is about free speech right can uh, twitter's a, a private platform um which has mainly allowed people to say almost anything um, rarely had it gotten involved up until now. And in fact, Jack Dorsey, the founder of Twitter has come under a lot of fire. Um, I didn't really, you know, I followed this as a, like everybody else and I didn't think it was going to go anywhere. The, the, but last week there was a letter from, uh, you know, the, the widower of this woman who had died in Joe Scarborough's office years ago, tragically, uh, appealing to Twitter saying, please don't let the president uh, foment this conspiracy that Joe Scarborough murdered my wife. Cause it's very hurtful. You can imagine the pain of this guy. And, you know, Donald Trump is just using this as another distraction in his world. And, uh, so there began to be a real, um, a lot of pressure on Twitter and Jack Dorsey, obviously he has the at Jack handle on Twitter. So he's very easy to, uh, for people to go after saying, what are you going to do? You got to do about this? You know? Um, And finally, he has done something, right? And it wasn't on the Joe Scarborough tweets, actually. It was about uh, Trump saying that mail-in voting would somehow lead automatically to a rigged election, that mail-in voting was de facto a corrupt um, enterprise, which, you know, thinking about the fall when we could plausibly have some kind of coronavirus resurgence and people might be forced to do mail-in voting if if there's any kind of voting going to take place. You know, here's Trump automatically trying to undermine that right off the bat to his own advantage, um, which is just, I'm, I don't know, I get really angry about this. I mean, I think it's sick. It's just sick that he would want to, uh, you know, undermine the the chances, <laughs> I don't know, of an election taking place. And then if one does take place hurting a lot of marginalized uh, people who would want—you know, it might be their only way to vote, or people who don't want to die from getting ill. So anyway, all of these—before um, uh, I go on a, a, a rant, I should say that next week uh, on Inside the Hive, uh, we're going to be having Mark Elias from the DNC and uh, Dale Ho from the ACLU, both are lawyers dealing with the mail-in voting issue, and we'll be talking to them about what's the status of that. You know, there are a lot of lawsuits. Um Against states that don't ordinarily allow it or have really onerous rules about it, so that we can actually have an election in the fall.
1: Let me end of rant. Let me say how excited I am for that conversation next week. And you, you and I talk almost every week about the importance of what's going to happen in the November election and how people are going to be able to vote. So I'm so glad that we're going to spend more time diving into that. But let me just back up a second and talk about really quickly the Scarborough tweets and the Scarborough accusations, and I will say um, I'm a friend of Joe's, I'm a friend of Mika's, I'm on their show all the time as an NBC contributor, and I actually cover their wedding for Vanity Fair, I cover their engagement for Vanity Fair, Uh, I've known them for a long time, and I've known their relationship with the president. And I've seen uh, through my reporting and through my, my friendship with them that the president for whatever reason, lets Joe Scarborough get under his skin and instead of acting like a normal president who has ups and downs with reporters and people he watches cover him, he is acting like a crazy conspiracy theorist in a way that is, A, so irresponsible, B, so unbecoming of and unfitting of the office, and, and C, it is so dishonorable to a family who has gone through an unimaginable loss. And to bring this up in this way for what he thinks is going to be his political gain is so disgusting and so vile and so distasteful. And I will I will add to that, that's the most important thing, but, but adding to it, everyone who I've talked to who knows the president has said this is a dumb fight to pick. There's no win here. It's it's not even red meat to his base, which is the the reasoning behind so much of the other shit he, he flings out at the wall that you could say, okay, well, that appeals to his base, not appeals to his message. This appeals to nobody. And what they're doing to dredge up something that is so hurtful to this family for no political gain is somehow worse than all of it. And I know that Twitter has not fact-checked that. I know that they're fact-checking other things, and maybe that's supposed to be putting him on warning. But I would just hope that there are people around the president who are able to get through to him and say, this is too far and you're not gaining anything. And if you have any kind of heart, just stop. I think it's a good segue into what we're going to talk about in the interview. And that is someone who is always around the president. Uh, the one real constant or the, the second real constant, if you count his wife as well, we got to talking to three people who used to work for and with Jared Kushner very closely when he was uh, publisher of the New York Observer. And what a conversation, Joe. What's been so interesting to me as I've covered Jared and Ivanka over the last four years is that I've gotten to have these great private conversations with people who knew them back when Jerry was at the Observer or Ivanka was running her own brand through the campaign and now. And, and what our privilege is as reporters is that we get to have these, understa- these conversations that really help you understand who these people in power are. And uh, critics could say or people who are not as understanding of, of what we as reporters do could say, well, you just want to talk shit on these people. You just want to find out the dirtiest details about them and report them to bring them down. And and look, I love I love hearing gossip more than probably most people on this earth. But what I think is really important in our jobs and has been really helpful to me is if you understand who these people are by talking to people who know them best, you sort of understand where they're going to go. And... I remember during the campaign, uh, there weren't that many people giving a lot of attention to Jared and Ivanka and Vanity Fair was definitely one of them who was. And throughout all of that, uh, I was, as I was talking to many, many people who knew them over the years, uh, everyone would say to me, these people aren't going anywhere that as long as as Donald Trump was going through this, Ivanka and Jared would be there by his side. Now, no one really could have anticipated that it would have ended up like this. I remember the week before the election, uh, I was working on a story about Ivanka Trump's fashion brand and what she was going to do to reimagine it or rebrand it after. Trump lost in the election. And I had a whole story written the Friday before the election that was based on people who were very familiar with the brand telling me what the game plan was. There was a whole plan to get her her brand back on track. Um, and and of course, we had to scrap that because he actually did win. Um, but but what I wanted to bring to this week's episode was to have those sort of private conversations on Inside the Hive and to get to understand one of the most powerful men in the world uh, by understanding where he's come from and what motivates him and what he's like as a boss, not in the West Wing to get at what he's like a boss in the West Wing and why he stayed by Donald Trump's side and what his relationship was like towards the press before all of this. And so if you get a sense of who he was before all this, it really helps you understand why he does what he does when he's in the West Wing. So we got a real taste of that this week. We have three incredible guests. We have Tom McGevern, we have Elizabeth Spires, and we have our own Michael Calderon. And they really walk us through how they met Jared, uh, what he was like, in the office the fights that they got in with him what kind of music he listens to which i know would appeal to you and it was just a really fascinating deep dive into who i like to call the fresh prince of calorama it's really easy to rag on president donald trump and to rag on members of his administration because they make it very easy to do that but over the last couple of years which is insane that it's been that long and insane that this is our world, I've been very privileged to try and focus my energy and attentions on talking to people who know the president and know the people who surround him so that I can at least try and understand what makes them do the things they do, their motivations, their ideologies, their triggers, their insecurities. For me and my own reporting, that's been particularly true when it comes to Jared Kushner and his wife, Ivanka Trump. And I've been having versions of the conversation we're about to have in private for the last four years. And it's been really helpful to me in getting to the heart of what I think makes Jared Kushner tick. So I'm really excited to get to have one of those conversations here on Inside the Hive with three people who I think understand him really well. This is not a bitch fest, though I love a bitch fest. It will hopefully be a thoughtful deep dive into one of the most powerful people in the world. And I'm so glad that we have the best of the best here to do that. I am joined today by three people who worked for or around Jared Kushner at the New York Observer. I'm so excited to welcome Tom McGevern, partner and co-founder of Old Town Media and a former editor at the New York Observer, Elizabeth Spires, founder of The Insurrection and another former editor-in-chief of The Observer, and my colleague at Vanity Fair, Michael Calderon, who wrote the the off-the-record column at the paper. Guys, welcome. And during a pandemic, this is even more bizarre and strange and exciting than it would have been maybe under normal circumstances. I'm so excited to have you here. Are you guys ready to get get going?
2: Yeah, thanks for
1: Great. So let me go around in a little round robin here and ask you guys how you each met Jared Kushner, when you met them, and what your first impressions were. Elizabeth, will you start us off?
3: Uh, sure. I actually met Jared two weeks after he bought The Observer. Um, I don't remember what year that was. I was running a company called Breaking Media that I had started and I had a Wall Street site called Dealbreaker that I spun up and the Observer was doing some financial coverage, but not a lot. So Jared and I met to talk about, um, you know, a potential partnership or maybe expanding it. And that conversation sort of didn't go anywhere. And so I didn't talk to him again until he approached me about, uh, working on revamping the Observer's website that led to me, you know, being the editor in chief of the, the paper but my first impressions of him were that, you know, he came in and he, he gave me a big spiel about how, you know, everything that was broken with uh, media from a, a business model perspective. Um, and, you know, there, were there, nothing he said was um, wildly off. You know, he talked about a broken ad model, but I also think that's apparent to anybody who works in media. Sure. Um, and I was struck by um, how little he understood the sensibility of the paper. Uh, He told me a specific anecdote about wanting to do a competition with street musicians uh, and and do a story about who who the winner would be. And it's the kind of thing that would be great, in a a totally different publication. But it it made me sort of wonder if he had ever read the the paper that he bought. And so that was my first impression of him. And it wasn't, uh, I would say, as as negative as my impression now of him is, but um, it, it it. Raise some questions,
1: Sure, how quickly things change, and I want to get in obviously to how your impressions have changed and why they change, but i'm going to keep on this one question, Tom, tell me when when you first met Jared and what you thought
4: sure uh, uh, well, one thing just to jump a little bit is I am yeah. the person that he was complaining about to Elizabeth, who had to quash <laughs> what he called the hobo fight of street musicians um, in the Central oh my Central. god but um. Yes, when I first met Jared, I had an extremely uh, positive impression of him, actually. Um, We'd been looking for a buyer for The Observer, and in that, you know, Arthur Carter had been the owner, but um, he just was losing interest and had kind of given Peter Kaplan, the longtime editor editor-in-chief, kind of free reign to try to find somebody who could make him an offer that he couldn't refuse for the paper, and there had been a few back and forth with different New York luminaries of different kinds. But then this kid, Jared Kushner, appeared on the scene. And it was sensitive when Peter started talking to him about the paper because I had been writing a lot of articles about Charlie Kushner, his father, who had been trying to get the chairmanship of the Port Authority. Um, But uh, fast-forwarding to Jared buying the paper, and uh, the first time I met him and shook his hand, um, you know, he actually said something which struck me at the time as sophisticated in a way that surprised me from what I'd heard secondhand about him. He said, uh, you know, hey, listen, you you might be the guy that cost my dad the Port Authority chairmanship, but, you know, laughing, you know, sort of laughing and being friendly about it, you know, but Howard Rubenstein, and there he's talking about the, uh, uh, the uh, famous PR executive who uh, handled Charlie Kushner's account. Uh, Howard always uh, told us that you were super fair, so you know I really appreciate that. And obviously, that's the job, right? And I was like, "Yep, thanks, Jared." So I thought, "Wow, uh, not all publishers, not all publishers, not all sophisticated publishers are quite that sophisticated." So that's pretty impressive. Uh, my uh, opinions also changed, but uh, but we can start with that. That was my
2: first impression.
1: <laughs> I'm now I'm now dying to ask the follow up, but I'm gonna I'm gonna resist my temptation, uh, Michael. Let's go to you.
2: Sure, yeah, I I was a reporter at the Observer, uh well, with Tom as well, and I remember there being a lot of concerns about what would be the future of the paper. I there was a particularly depressing editorial meeting once where we were told that some people who were interested in in funding the paper, I think it was the people of the Tribeca Film Festival, that had fallen through and it was really uncertain who was going to buy it. So, my initial impression of Jared was was positive. Here was this rich kid who was who was about the age of a lot of the reporters on staff, although coming from a very different a different place uh, in terms of his wealth. But he, he did say a lot of the, a lot of the the right things early on. He talked about running the Observer as a business, which the Observer was never really run as a business. So, but I, that that wasn't so surprising for him to to talk about early on. And you know he he seemed uh, a fairly benign presence at least in the beginning. Uh, the paper was run by Peter Kaplan, who is a, a a brilliant, fabled editor in New York City, and I think for a lot of staff, as long as Peter was running the show and the headlines looked the same, we would be pretty content, no matter who was the owner. Um, I, obviously, things things started changing when when Jared took more of a interest in how the paper should look, switching from a broadsheet to a tabloid. Um, but at least early on, it it seemed uh, fairly fairly, you know, not, not so not so problematic to have Jared as an owner. You know, we were a very underpaid staff. And I remember people just being happy, hey, Jared's buying pizzas on Tuesday night as we close the paper. So, mm. you know, our priorities, maybe we're not uh, thinking that this this guy would once be advising the President of the United States. We were thinking, oh, he was a rich guy who bought the paper who's now buying us pizza.
1: Sure. Now, I have, to, I have to ask the follow-up questions about how your impressions have changed, but I also am going to ask you at the same time how the newspaper changed uh, from the time he came in and started buying you pizza and um, changing it to a tabloid and, and all the things that you, you thought when he came in are not probably dissimilar for anyone who's worked in a newsroom or any organization that gets a new owner and a boss, uh, but things definitely change in the newsroom, I know. So Tom, why don't we start with you, then we'll go to Michael and then to Elizabeth, just to keep it spicy. Yeah,
4: yeah, sure. Uh, Well, early on, I think uh, it it became clear, it wasn't an antagonistic relationship, but it was definitely, uh, it was like tennis between uh, Peter and uh, Jared. Um, Even when we were friendly, it was sort of like, we'd sit down and we'd be like, oh no, look, there's... an." email from Jared and he wants us to do, for instance, you know, uh, have everybody rank all the subway buskers, you know, or uh, Mm. there was nothing inherently wrong with that story. It just was not for our audience. But we basically had to choose what we would do and not do. Uh, The thing that I remember most is when he wanted to do something that he was very adamant should be called celebrity slapdown. And that was going to be a bracketology thing with new york socialites um where people voted um and the idea was sort of at the time there were some of these society websites like uh guest of a guest and patrick I think he was a little jealous of their currency among his group of friends um and that one we were like well okay what if we do it but it's its own website and it's produced by us but we don't Put it in the paper, basically. sure, <laughs> and that's what we ended up uh doing. And I can still remember the night that I spent like 36 straight hours writing up the bios of all the celebrities and deciding, oh my what my brackets were called beauty. Did brains, he weigh in PR at all? Reading, you know, and yeah, Gawker wrote about it. It actually did okay, <laughs> to be honest, oh my God. but it was, um, it was a little bit soul crushing. But, you know, doing that meant that we could say no to other things. And uh, we were trying to preserve a good relationship with Jared. And, uh, you know, honestly, I think we came at it also from the point of view that a publisher actually has kind of a right to say, you know, this is the kind of paper I want to own. Um, You know, a sophisticated publisher doesn't get in the way of the truth. And that's the important thing. But uh, and doesn't get in the way of his own brand, the brand that he bought. Um, and he needs advice from the editors on that and the people around the ground and his business staff and all that. Um, So, you know, from our point of view, it was like, but the negotiation, I'd say, got, the negotiations got more frequent and they got more um, uh, recriminatory. You know, the reason you don't want to do this is because you don't know how to manage your writers and just tell them what to do or, you know, uh, well, these writers just, they're all, they all want to, the thing that always came through is, you know, Writers are actually just people, writers and reporters are people who can't do anything worthwhile in society, but want the benefits of traveling in exalted social circles. So they write about those things. And what we want to do is like basically take your entire staff down a notch. If, mm. if and that's like, the, that's kind of like, was, it, I don't think he thought that was the point of the New York Observer, but I think that was he thought at any rate was the useful corrective he could offer the editorial department you know so it was in a weird way as much as it was about coverage or it was about the business it was actually a little bit it was a little bit personal and you know you could see the sort of seedlings of um, how his hatred of the media kind of manifested itself and you know there's a long history of that too actually You know, it turns out in his the hatred of the media that he developed around the coverage of his father's, um, you know, uh, criminal uh, case. And, you know, uh, in retrospect, it seems like we were naive not to understand that his purchase of the paper, like his purchase of 666 Fifth Avenue was a way of getting his own against the people who he thought had Mm. his family.
1: That's why it's, it's particularly interesting to me when you said your first impression was that he was sort of this sophisticated publisher who had a, a very different attitor, attitude toward reporters. What you're talking about ha- that came to be as you got to know him more and as he became perhaps a slightly more seasoned publisher, that is the attitude that I'm familiar with as a reporter who's, who's covered him, someone who is um, very hands-on about, the reporting and the kinds of coverage that are going to be, uh, that that's around him and that that's written about people who he likes or, or doesn't like. Uh, I think that that is definitely a circle that we see over and over again now that he's in the white house. Michael, I'm wondering what you noticed, uh, changing in the newsroom.
2: Yeah. I, I, you know, I I think jumping off what Tom and Elizabeth said is that, part of the disconnect with Jared and the staff was that Jared didn't particularly like what the staff did. He, I think he liked the idea of the New York observer and buying this, this, this news news outlet that was read by a lot of rich and powerful people in Manhattan, especially as he was kind of moving some of the business from New Jersey where his father, uh, you know, had gone to jail, um, and moving moving his real estate business into New York City and kind of being his own person in New York City, you know, he said he told Gabe Sherman once, who our colleague of any Fair, that you know he found the paper uh, reading the paper was like doing homework, and and that's a problem because people who were writing the Observer and and the audience for it were, were people that really enjoyed getting this paper every Wednesday and then later you know more and more coverage online as it as it as it moved increasingly to to blogs and other things uh, in the mid two thousands, but but that's the thing jared did thought that it was uh, the writing was sort of unbearable it was cluttered and and he didn't really like it and so him every as every publisher you know should have the authority to to make changes but i think fundamentally he didn't seem to care for the original product and why it was successful and mm. so it's, it's one thing to make changes around the edges to something that you generally feel is um, a good sensibility it's it's it becomes problematic if, if you don't see much value in it um and i and i think you know i uh, you know i i think also the reporters who are at the observer you know we're not making very much money but we're in some ways we're covering power in new york city and covering the very rich and oftentimes making fun of the very rich and it, it wasn't because every reporter who was in that newsroom wanted to be rich and powerful, like perhaps Jared Kushner wanted to be. It was because we we liked covering this this sort of social world and covering uh, the people who were atop politics and media and real estate and culture in New York City. And 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 so, for instance, I remember when when he started dating Ivanka. Jared Ivanka came into the newsroom and. And it was something that reporters talked about because all of a sudden this is Donald Trump's daughter is dating the publisher of a paper and eventually it filtered out to Gawker and Gawker did an item on it, which I think Jared was not happy about. But this is this is sort of what reporters talked about. We talked about people in these worlds and I don't know if he ever cared for that, uh, you know, that had it ever shared the same interest as as the kind of reporters there. Jared would have been a quintessential observer character if he hadn't bought The Observer. Here's a of guy from Scandal. Uh, and buys this paper and you know you had this initial coverage is very sort of Charles Foster Kane type of coverage of him as this upstart publisher making his making his way in New York City and he would have been a perfect per- person was to cover just like Donald Trump was an ideal observer character uh, you know for for decades really until uh, he started having more power at the paper himself.
4: The 2024 election means this year is going to be chock full of drama and nail-biting suspense. You deserve a politics and news podcast with expert analysis. No spin, no BS, just trusted journalists talking about what you need to know. I'm David Plotz, and each week on Slate's Political Gab Fest, I sit down with The New York Times' Emily Bazelon and CBS News' John Dickerson to do just that. Join us as we unpack the latest in politics, news, and the courts. Listen to The Political Gab Fest— Every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I, I have a question for, I guess, for all of you. Um, were there people who were off limits for him to cover, for you guys to cover?
4: In the early days, there was uh, there were uh, there was only one person who was off limits and. Well, we didn't publicize it. I think we were all perfectly happy for him to be off limits. Mm. (laughs) And that was Sandy Weil because it was Arthur Carter's old business partner. He, You know, Carter Weil Berlin. And it wasn't actually because he was friends with him and he wanted to protect him. It was actually because Arthur believed that if his newspaper said stuff about Sandy Weil, everyone would think that he directed it. And he people to think that. So we cut that out. Kind of for a different reason than you might cut out the friends of a publisher. Arthur was very good at seeing people at parties and them saying, "Why did you let your newspaper write this terrible thing about me?" And he would sure. just say, "I don't write the newspaper." Sure, you know, so it was never quite out of that, uh, not off limits, but there was a slight sort of soft ban on Donald Trump for a while before Jared bought the paper because it became the opinion of the editors there that there was no there there. He wasn't actually influential; he was just a gadfly. <laughs> So in the period leading up to Jared's purchase of the paper, one of the ironies is, because I remember D- Donald Trump used to be somebody that always picked up the phone if you called. His assistant Norma would say, "Hello," you say, "Hi, sure. can Hi. I speak to Mr. Trump?" Norma would say, uh, "Give me a second. Let me see if he's there." He's always there. He always picks up the <laughs> phone for the reporter. So it was like if all you can get to, t- the only person you need to talk about this is Donald Trump. At this point, that doesn't prove anything. So just don't. It's lazy. Calling.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's I, I, as a real estate reporter, there are a number of times I called Donald Trump for a quote because he was always he was the most accessible, famous person in New York City. So you could get a quote from him, but at the same time, he would give a quote about nearly anything happening in the world that you wanted to, to, to publish.
1: I would say the most damning thing you could say and have, have hear about yourself is that a you're easy to get and b people know you're such a phony that they, that's not even useful for them to have you. And it's not a good look for them to quote you in their story. Elizabeth, I'm wondering what you saw change if you were ever limited in what you were allowed to cover. Walk me through what, what you noticed when you were taking the reins.
3: Yeah. I mean, when, when I started the job, Trump was running for president in the prior cycle. Um, and but nobody took him seriously. He wasn't polling well. He was an outlier. Everybody considered him a fringe figure. So Jared and I had some big fights early on about how the paper would cover Trump. And I, I, you know, agreed with him that we couldn't cover him in a very direct way because there's an obvious conflict of interest. You know, Ivanka's a part owner of the paper. But I said, you know, he is running for president. There, there are front page Time stories about this we have to be able to place him in a context or our political desk can't do their jobs, you know? So we, we sort of had a, an agreement that the politics desk could aggregate stories about Trump. And that very quickly escalated into um, Jared and I having fights about it because none of the stories that were coming out about Trump were positive. Um, mm. so we had a, a particularly epic fight, I think two months into my tenure there. And I thought it was gonna be the shortest tenured uh, editor at The Observer, um, where it was a Friday and we were kind of, we were on the phone, but uh, it had escalated to the point where he was yelling and I was yelling. And um, he was sort of vaguely threatening that, you know, if we didn't do positive coverage of Trump, that, uh, you know, I would get fired. And I said, well, first of all, I, I just, I would never ask my desk to do that. But if I did, ever I would have, you know, four resignation letters on my desk immediately. Um, and we just couldn't get any resolution on it. So we agreed to table the conversation until the following Monday, but I, I warned him. I said, if your father-in-law gets up on Saturday and says something insane, like, you know, they've been abducted by aliens or something, which, which didn't seem out of the realm of possibility, frankly, um, you know, we, we can't pretend that it didn't happen. Uh, and but I also called um, Stephen Rubenstein that, that weekend because he was close to Jared and said, you know, I feel like I'm being backed in a corner here. Um, he's asking me to do something that I, I think is journalistically unethical and I can't do. Um, and Stephen said, well, you know, one thing you you have to sort of understand is that he views this as a family loyalty issue and you view it as an ethics issue. And I said, yeah, but, you know, Jared can get yelled at by his father in law. I can't. Uh, throw away my entire life and career <laughs> as a journalist. Like sure. uh, I, I feel like he's going to back me into this corner. And um, and then Stephen emailed me early Monday morning, morning and said, you know, I, I think your problem's been solved. And a few hours later, it broke that Trump was dropping out of the race. Um, but wow. And after that, uh, how did Jared? How does Jared fight? What's um, his style? He, he he's, he's always kind of outraged that anyone would. Would say no to him, you know, and and that comes from a lifetime of having mostly been cloistered in situations where the people around him are family or there are people that have been specifically hired because they're very compliant, you know, they're yes men types. Um, and journalists don't behave that way, you know, constitutionally. Sure. Uh, so I, I think he he would just be shocked that anyone said no to him, you know. Uh, and we had a kind of okay working relationship most of the time because I could, I'm a kind of, I, I, don't, I don't get heated very easily. And, and I have the stamina for like a long discussion about things or an argument about things. And so we would sometimes resolve conflict just by, you know, me asking him to uh, back up, you know, whatever his argument was and in, in kind of like a non confrontational way. And and he would just get exhausted by it sometimes and, and then just back off the issue because he didn't really want to have to think things through or, or present evidence or present a case. And that's kind of how he is, you know, he wants to be able to say because I said so to everyone, because for much of his life, he's been able to do that. And people have just complied. And it's harder to do that with journalists, frankly.
1: Sure. I, I'm, Elizabeth, you bring up your sort of working relationship and Michael, you said something about um, how Jared thought of reading as homework and I want to know from each of you, sort of was your working relationship, like, were you guys having lunch together? Were you having drinks together after work? And also what you picked up about his tastes were, was there music that he would listen through throughout the day? Did he ever seem to read books to you guys? Um, why don't we start with Michael, then we'll go to Tom and then Elizabeth.
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, it's interesting hearing Elizabeth talking about fighting with Jared, because I, I never had that, Sort of relationship with him as as a reporter, I wasn't dealing with him on budgets. I wasn't dealing with him on the kind of big picture ideas of of changing the format of the paper or things of that nature. So my experiences with him were always sort of pleasant. I would see him. I would see him around the office. You know, I used to go in to the office sometimes on Sundays. Um, you know, because as this was my first reporting job, and I was sort of terrified of people like Tom McGevern and the other editors that I wanted to do a good job. Um, and I would sometimes do some work on Sundays. And often Jared w- and I was were the only two people in the office at the time. Um, I don't know what he was working on. He was working in his office. But, you know, he seemed like fairly, you know, industrious and he was pleasant. So my my interactions with him, were, I think, were quite different from the editors, especially as he, he spent more time at the paper because I left by 2007. He bought the paper in 2006. I left in 2007. And I think you know, the succession of editors who had to kind of grapple with his ideas and what he wanted in there and, and the ideas of possible hit pieces and things of that nature, um, you know, started coming up after I left and, and things started changing a lot more.
1: Mm. No, I I, I, I want to hear those uh, struggles. So so Tom, jump in.
2: Yeah,
4: sure. Um, so picking up on a thing that Michael said earlier, um, one of the things so the, the bulk of my relationship with Barrett, I wasn't the editor-in-chief, Peter Kaplan was, but right. what had happened, what, I, I was the managing editor, but what had happened was that the Peter and Jared, they weren't not getting along, they just were kind of in a detente and, and and weren't talking. There was no big thing that had happened, I don't think, but they just they couldn't, it was like they couldn't have productive conversations and it was uh, a kind of like um, eating up Peter. And so I became a go-between. So as the managing editor, I would go into his office for an hour or more, maybe twice a week. Um, We we had exactly one drink ever. It was after Peter Kaplan left and it was after some observer event. And it was, you know, uh, it was very awkward. It was like, a a whiskey late at night at um i want to say virgil's barbecue or something like that which Mm. i i I was like it was the only place near us on Times square and so i i didn't want to take him to jimmy's corner so i i pulled him there and i realized i was bringing him to this like barbecue palace, and it was just like not altogether awkward and bad not not Um, totally his wheelhouse yeah but one of the things about um jared and being said no to and stuff was was that um we never had fights we would have disagreements, but we'd never have fights in the sense that it seemed to me that he was not ever wanting to get to the point where he was asking for a yes or a no. And that way he could keep things alive for longer. And it was like, he, he, he didn't want this thing to happen where someone said no to him or, or that's how he understood it at the time. And so we would actually manage. Okay. and, Every once in a while, he'd say, this person's really terrible. You guys should write about him. And you'd think, I don't want to dig too deeply on that because there's probably some reason he wants, he thinks that the observer should write about them. But he's welcome to say what the observer should write about as long as we don't take it as a directive. And, you know, he never did. So it just never really happened. Um, But uh, the thing that I noticed that was huge was that Peter Kaplan left and then I became the interim editor and the style and substance of my interactions with Jared changed completely on a dime. And that's when it suddenly hit me. I had thought because I was doing a pretty good job of managing the relationship between the publisher and the newsroom so far, that it'd be good for me to continue doing that. But what I didn't realize was that having Peter Kaplan in the, in the background of that, um, in the background, Peter Kaplan was the guy that he didn't want to have to say, he, he didn't want to say no to him mm. because then he'd be the person that fired Peter Kaplan. So when Peter Kaplan left, all it was like all options were open suddenly. So uh, we had at that point several fights he'd call and sort of demand things. Uh, including coverage, including budget cuts. You know, he, he even how I became editor, it was on the basis of his giving a new budget that was a 50% budget cut to the newsroom. And I was like, I, at first I wanted to be like, well, I'm not going to do this, so go find another editor. And then he said, well, I'll find another editor, but if I find another editor and we're starting this thing from scratch, then I think we're going to be down to 25% or less. And I was just thinking about, the observer and preserving it as a brand and also preserving as many jobs as possible. But I only ended up lasting for, <laughs> I think it was April when I got the interim position In mm. I quit the weekend before Jared's wedding in October, um, which, which I went to and as stayed through Thanksgiving or something. So, <laughs> okay.
1: Well, first of all, I want to hear about the wedding. I feel like I know more about the wedding then I have any business knowing about a wedding I was not invited to. But I want to hear about the wedding. And I want to know what what made you quit once and for all.
4: Um, well, I mean, I went in and said to Jared, and I think Steve Rubenstein was in the room. <laughs> I said to Jared, um, you know, I actually said, I think you want a different kind of publisher than the kind of publisher I'm going to be. And I think, you know, if, if that's the publisher you want, then it's not me. So I, I think I should go. Um
1: what was his reaction?
4: Well, you know, it was it was uh you know, Jared, Elizabeth and Michael might recognize this, but you know, he gets this face sometimes when he doesn't like something where he's sort of trying to smile but it's not working and it's like a grimace, it's like a very very it's a dark grimace and it's almost like you can hear the storm clouds. <laughs> But mm. he kept a very even voice and like, spoke very pleasantly and said, well, if that's you know, really the way you feel, then all right. But um, this is really surprising to me and et cetera, et cetera. And um, he was surprised by it. And um, it was on that basis, I think, that he extracted the agreement from me that I would help him find a successor and that I would stay on for a long time. You know?
1: mm.
4: So we was actually, it ended, up, actually we ended up staying there till the end of the year.
1: Oh, wow. Was it was it uncomfortable to go to the wedding after having that conversation? Or
4: Yeah, I'm sorry. I can't give you a lot of details about that wedding because I think me and Jim Kelly, who's the old editor of Time, uh-huh. I, I think he and I might have just gone into a corner of the tent and drank
1: <laughs>
4: all that I know about that wedding.
1: My favorite detail about the wedding is that um, I believe that there were sort of brochure-like things. Uh, for Bedminster or for one of the Trump properties put into the wedding invitation. It Not was, to, at, it was yes. at
4: Bedminster. So. Uh,
1: it, yes. It feels like um, nothing says everlasting romance, like a, a pamphlet for your father's golf properties. Um, yeah. Did you guys notice any kind of, what what did he listen to? What did he read? If he read anything, what, what was his taste like?
4: I mean, I don't know how true this was, but he told me that um, the only band that he liked was Maroon 5, so there's that. And then he also, um, it's widely reputed, and he used to say it, that he loved The Count of Monte Cristo, uh, which is a funny book for him to like because it really is about a guy who extracts revenge for perceived slight and, like, destroys...
1: It's the two the two of those are are two of the most perfect details that if you were writing a fictional version of Jared Kushner, I don't even know if those would feel too on the nose to me. Uh, Elizabeth, I'm wondering what your working relationship was like and if you saw the same kind of scary look that Tom just described that I'm I'm withering just imagining.
3: Well, I mean, you know, I also think his his interactions with me were a little bit tonally different because I was a woman. Um, Historically, like, you know, every time I would go into Kushner Co., I never met a single woman executive. uh, And I was the first woman that Jared had hired. Mm. Um, So I think he he sort of expected more compliance from me for for gendered reasons. Um, And I don't, you know, anybody who's who's met me, I'm I'm reserved, but I'm not uh, meek in any sense. So I, I think uh, I was willing to have arguments with him, which he didn't like. They were very polite arguments. I didn't, you know, I'm not a yeller. I don't get uh, very emotional very easily, but I, I would sort of, you know, require him to kind of make a case to me about why he should do something. And sometimes that would just get exhausting for him and he would he would throw in the towel just because he didn't want to have the conversation anymore. Mm. Um so and that became a way for me, not, not the most functional way of of upwardly managing him, but it it worked for the most part. You know, he would try to talk us into or out of coverage. And uh, you know, we had a conversation when I interviewed for the job, uh, where I asked him bluntly how many stories he had killed under the the current editor, and he said he thought about it and he said two and I knew the number was higher.
1: <laughs> sure. Uh, uh, <laughs>
3: And I said, well, I can live with two, but if you kill more than two over the course of my tenure, I'm out of there. Also knowing that it depends on what the stories are, you know, of course. Um, I think that there's always a situation where when you have an owner like that, they're, they're going to try to kill coverage and it happens. Um, it happens at every, you know, news organization, um, so when we would have these arguments, I would say, if, especially if he was trying to lobby for us to kill something, I would say, "Is this one of the two stories?" And then usually he'd back off. Like he thought of it mm. as something he had in reserve, um, and I thought of it as, you know, a, a way to sort of emphasize the the stakes to him. Um, and, it, and it mostly worked. It's it's not a functional way to work with a a publisher, but it it for in his case it worked. Um I, I think what you're you're sort of getting at is, you know, what is Jared like when he's angry? And and I think of it, you know, he he sort of had this when he was the angriest, it was because he has this um sense of entitlement about what people owe him. And and in the case of the observer, he would like to tell the journalist on a regular basis that, you know, he'd done them a favor by agreeing to keep them employed. Um and mm. this was at a paper where everyone was catastrophically underpaid. Uh, and there, because they liked what the paper did and the fact that it was, you know, a, a smart, writerly paper, um, and he would routinely sort of tell them that he was, you know, he was felt like he was giving them charity, which is, of course, um, you know, a deep misunderstanding of what motivates journalists, uh, and, and also just insulting to the entire staff. So his reaction whenever you told him no or you push back on something was you know a little bit of how dare you, and it, it was sort of a petulance to it. You know, he was used to having people just serve up whatever he wanted, and it wasn't happening in this context. So I sometimes felt like you know you're dealing with a child who's throwing a temper tantrum when they can't have a toy they want, mm. uh, and you you sort of have to respond accordingly, like get get him to emotionally deescalate. And then have a conversation about the stakes that's not as emotionally loaded. So sometimes it would just be, you know, putting the conversation off a little bit or saying, like, let's continue this tomorrow. Um, because he wasn't, you know, he, it's not like he, during those moments, kind of even understood why he was angry, except for the fact that someone didn't want to immediately do whatever he said. Uh, mm-hmm. And he viewed any kind of disagreement as insubordination, which is, you know, a trait he shares with his father-in-law. Um, and that gets reinforced when at Kirchner Co disagreement is in subordination or viewed that way. Um, sure. so it, you know, it was complicated. It's, it's, I've, I've worked for a lot of wealthy people and a lot of people who had power in other industries. And, and Jared was kind of a unique experience in that sense.
1: Sure. I, and, and you bring up, um, a quality that he shares with his father-in-law. And one of the things that I often think about is that if you ever talk to anybody who knows Trump or has known Trump in the past, one of the hallmarks and constants that people bring up to me is that he doesn't actually believe in anything, that what he's motivated by it has nothing to do with a core set of values. It has to do with self-preservation and self-dealing and, and other self-motivated things, but it's not, it's not like a, an underlying value system. Does Jared share that with Trump as well? Or does, does Jared feel motivated by a set of values? And if there are values motivating him, I'm wondering what you saw those values to be.
3: Uh, no, I mean, at this point, I, I think he's a complete nihilist. Uh, I didn't necessarily think that when I was working at The Observer, I kind of viewed, I knew that Jared and Ivanka were social climbers. And while that's, uh, you know, distasteful on some level, it's, it's not immoral, and I think I, I sort of only got a good grasp on, on who he was when he beelined for the White House and started kind of endorsing all these horrible policies mm. that a same Jared Kushner would have disagreed with three years prior. Um, so no, I, I think that's that's a accurate assessment. And I think they're they're both nihilists, they don't really have a core set of values, they value status over everything. Uh, And and they view powers as a a means to that. Um, And it it sort of explains, you know, all of their behavior there. If there is no value system behind it, you know, I find it amusing that Jared's being asked to articulate now the Republican platform on some level, uh, which he can't do already. You know, he asked somebody for a mission statement and, you know, 10 points. Um, And that's because he, he, he didn't become a Republican on a values basis. He doesn't know what their values are. (laughs) Mm. He just says that his father-in-law is in power, and he wants some of that, and that—that's pretty much the—the the simplest explanation.
1: Yeah, Tom, Elizabeth just brought up the fact that uh, Jared is for in in some way in charge of the Republican platform going into this big election. That is one of the many, many things on the large slate that Jared Kushner has taken on since his father-in-law took office. The slate includes, I mean, it's trade agreements, Middle East peace, the re-election campaign, the government shutdown at one point, immigration, infrastructure, government IT, a shadow State Department, Uh, and now most pressingly and biggest and um, most looming is, is the global pandemic that we're all living through. I'm wondering, in your experiences, how suited he is to do these jobs and to do all of these jobs at once. Uh,
4: well, I mean, one of the jokes here is that nobody can be suited to do all those jobs at once. And, sure. And you know, if you know enough to solve the Middle East, then you—how on earth would you have time to know enough to do any of those other things? So yes. you know, it's almost like that's 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 exactly where the, the fraud is. But I'm but I'm reminded of a moment early in my period as interim editor, where I think Jared thought this reverse thing was happening. Peter Kaplan, the editor-in-chief, had taught him to be a publisher. Now he was going to teach me to be a highly important person instead of like an editorial ragamuffin. And, and he had me come to this event that was, uh, it was like a dinner and there were like 16 people at tables and I think Elon Musk was there. You know what I mean? It was all these like very powerful people. But the idea was he had convened this group of people who were like, behind some magic curtain that you didn't know about. And he's like, you need to learn how to have conversations with these people. And the conversations were like these very uh, philosophical, high level conversations about like sort of the disposition of society and the world economy and stuff. And It wasn't political, mostly because it was so vague, but most of the people in the room were probably left-ish and then a few not. But, you know, it was just a very baffling room to be in. And when I left, you know, what struck me was, I think he believes there's almost this Nietzschean plane that certain people are chosen to exist on. And up there, you know, it's like being at the top of the Ferris wheel in The Third Man. Up there, everybody's just a little dot. And also, good and evil and ethics; these things are disposable categories because they, they if you if you're going to make a decision that changes the lives of millions of people, then you can't listen to all this bullshit. Basically, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? all these ragamuffin editors and intellectuals and academics and experts and scientists and stuff—they're not—they're—they're they're like service staff to this layer of people that has this uh, really almost like um, a chosen quality. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I, so that was my first intimation that he might kind of buy into something like that. And uh, Donald Trump, we know, buys into that. And uh, I think in a way that's what happened. I think when he talks about this sort of, you know, uh, stall of Tarsus conversion on horseback while he was on uh, the campaign trail with Donald Trump, you know, he says, I saw the look in the eyes of the people and the people were gnashing their teeth and government wasn't paying attention to them and they were being pushed around. And, you know, it changed my whole point of view about politics. I mean, that all has to be bullshit. I think it's that he saw these people and he saw the look in their eyes and he said, he thought to himself, we can run the world if we can corral a bunch of people this way. And, mm. you know, I think... I. Is that nihilism? I mean, strictly speaking, it is a form of nihilism. Um, but I, I, I do actually almost think that it's it's something a little bit like that.
1: <laughs> yeah. I Just I mean
4: elitism, raw elitism.
1: It's true. I think that that is foundational in him and certainly in the way he's been behaving in the White House. I mean, he is the he and his wife are really the last of the originals, and they have really survived so many rounds of exoduses from from that West Wing. You you brought up the fact that there is a sort of running the world quality or ambition. And, and my last question for all of you, because we have to sadly wrap this up, though, I could go all day with you guys. Um, and Michael, I, w- I want to ask you and then all of you to follow up. Where do you think Jared goes with all this? What happens if A, he doesn't win re-election or B, he does run re-election, win re-election and there's four more years of Trump. What happens at the end of those four years, assuming we're all still oh, alive yeah, and kicking?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, jumping off what, what Tom said, I I, I I think there is no Kushner worldview in him having some deep political or, or policy goals. I, I what, what struck me is thinking about The Observer is him coming into a newspaper that he doesn't particularly understand a kind of ramshackle operation, and having this vague idea that, well, if I just make it more more of a business, I can turn things around. And you and you see this with him now in his his vast portfolio in government, especially most recently with coronavirus, suggesting, well, if there's just a public, uh, you know, public private partnership, and we bring business in and we bring consultants, we can get around some of the experts and scientists and the doom and gloom and you know he seems to think that regardless of what's happening he has this this confidence apparently that you know he see, he he sees a better way a more efficient way of doing things and i think i think that's something you, you when people are asking about the israeli and palestinian crisis he says well i read 25 books about it and that's good he should educate himself but the idea that he can just kind of Take a look around things and 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 cut right to the chase of of government and and these sort of intractable situations in the world and 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 he's the one to get it done. It, it'll be interesting to see where he goes. We the, the talk earlier about him and 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 Ivanka as social climbers, and and I think that was something that that had a big effect on what he wanted to do with the newspaper it was very different than when Arthur Carter owned the paper. I wrote about real estate and people that Arthur Carter knew, people in buildings these kind of expensive buildings near he lived and I never heard a word about it and I, I don't know if he cared or not that we were writing about people he knew whereas Jared bought this paper at a time that he was clearly coming into his own in the world and it was it was a status symbol for him to to kind of jump from there in, in, in real estate and now in politics and, and in government so I mean I, I feel like it seems like no matter whether he makes huge mistakes or people feel like he has messed things up, he seems to just kind of plow right through and still think that he's the guy in the room that has the view of, 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 how to get things done. And so I think no matter what happens with Trump, he would come back to New York city and uh, back into real estate and, 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 and kind of not be uh, uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't see him particularly being, a, uh, you know, knocked down by what happens. I feel like he would just still feel like he has, he he has the right idea of how to make things work.
1: Well, I I don't disagree with you there. And I think that we will, uh, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on where you fall, we will see what happens to Jared Kushner next. I feel like that's a ominous way to end this, but we're going to wrap this up. I am so grateful for you guys coming on, having this conversation with me. I really um, wish I could do this all day. So I may call on you guys again to come back and, and, and talk more about this. I have no doubt we will have reason to do that. So thank you guys again. Stay safe, and we will hopefully speak to you soon. Thank you so much to my guests, Elizabeth, Tom, Michael, and of course, my co-host, Joe Hagan. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks so much to the folks at Cadence 13 for making it so smooth, even while we're at home. And thanks to my sponsors. Please support them any way you would support this podcast. We'll see you next week.
2: Hey,
4: John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it.